Talking Feds is sponsored by our friends at Total Wine & More, rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine, spirits, and beers. Steve Bannon committed a crime today. People have to understand that, whether it's from a court or from Congress. These are orders of law, and you've got to comply with them. He committed a crime, and so we've referred him for prosecution on criminal contempt. Now, that might not mean a lot to him if you've got millions of dollars, but the message has got to go out to anybody who's thinking of going down that Trump-Bannon path that we mean business, as Adam Kinziger said. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. We are somewhere in the second chapter of Joe Biden's presidency, and it's clear that the president's momentum is flagging. After a roaring start evoking comparisons to the New Deal and the Great Society, Biden has seen his signature legislation, which would transform American society on several fronts, stumble and fall prey to the capricious objections of one West Virginia senator. At the same time, continuing troubles with COVID, the tumultuous withdrawal from Afghanistan, and perhaps a sense of business as usual in Washington have pushed the president's approval ratings down to below 45%. The fate of his presidency seems inordinately tied to the full court press to enact the large spending bill that to date he can't quite get over the finish line. The January 6th Select Committee stepped up its game this week. Steve Bannon defied a subpoena for both documents and testimony, claiming executive privilege despite not having even been in the executive branch at the relevant time. The committee promptly began efforts to hold him in criminal contempt and refer him to the Department of Justice for prosecution. But whether the department will follow through on the referral and whether in any event it will all take more time than the committee has to complete its inquiry remained open questions. And in the continuing signs of the country's deep social polarization, a few Republican governors and self-styled Trumpists went all in against vaccine mandates. Whether they genuinely think they can win the battle against the federal government businesses and school districts are just looking to play to a Trumpian base and Trump himself. These governors are previewing an emerging article of faith for Republican contenders on the national scene. And to break down these big stories, we have three great commentators, really good friends of the podcast all, and they are Laura Jarrett, the anchor of CNN's Early Start with Christine Romans. She previously served as a CNN correspondent based in D.C., covering the Justice Department and a wide range of important legal issues. She gets up every morning at 3 a.m. to bring you the news and still finds time to be a regular on Talking Feds. Thanks very much, Laura, as always, for returning. Oh, Harry, it's so much more fun to do this than take a nap. (laughs) Oh, I didn't realize that was going to be the choice, but okay. Actually, I'm thinking, wow, that's high praise in my book. It is. And Joe Lockhart, the former White House press secretary to President Clinton, to whom we all wish a speedy recovery, and he appears to be having it. A CNN commentator and communications consultant, Joe was a founder of Glover Park Group, 
where apparently the motto was no assignment was too thorny because the former clients included Facebook and the NFL. Welcome back to Talking Feds, Joe. Happy to be here, and this will be a lot easier than the former. (laughs) (laughs) And Phil Rucker, the White House Bureau Chief of the Washington Post, as well as a political analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. He's the co-author of two books, including this summer's blockbuster, I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's Catastrophic Final Year, which was itself the subject of a previous Talking Feds episode that you might want to check out. His long list of top awards in the industry, many accorded by his colleagues and peers, include the Otto Beckman Award for Overall Excellence in White House Coverage from the White House Correspondents Association, and the Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of Russian interference. Phil Rucker, thank you very much for returning to Talking Feds. Thank you, Harry. Glad to be with you guys. All right. So the January 6th Select Committee kicked into a higher gear this week. Let's start with Steve Bannon, who told the committee to stick it. And the committee immediately responded by moving forward with steps to hold him in criminal contempt. Let me just serve up a factual question. What happens next? Well, I'm not sure anybody knows, and therein lies the problem. There have been, over the last two or three years, lots of letters, lots of threats, lots of posturing, but not lots of cooperation at all levels when Congress is looking into something, particularly something that involves the Trump administration. So as a non-lawyer, and I'll defer to Laura as the legal expert, but I think the problem is nobody knows what happens next. Well, what kind of cards is the committee holding? They're obviously, Laura, rattling sabers, but there's a whiff of insecurity about whether they have the goods to bring it home. Do you have a sense of this? My sense is that Taking a step back, their broader point is to send a message that Trump and his allies cannot flout these subpoenas. They are duly issued congressional subpoenas. And for them to have any teeth at all and for the public at large to take this endeavor seriously, they have no choice but to refer this to the Justice Department. They have the votes in Congress to get the contempt resolution. It will then go to the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., Query whether Merrick Garland feels some sort of way about quibbling with the decision to actually prosecute this. I think it's pretty rare in history that these actually do get prosecuted. I think the last one was what, in the Reagan administration, Harry, when Neil Gorsuch's mom was running the EPA. So these don't actually um, happen all that often. But in this case, I think giving all the attending circumstances, the panel had no choice but to go this route. They know if they go the civil contempt route, this is just going to get caught up forever. We've seen that movie and it had two intermissions. Right. And, and McGann stuff, I don't think we still know exactly where all that stands. So they have no choice here. I think their hand was forced. And I think by acting quickly, they're trying, trying to send a message to people like Jeffrey Clark. Do not mess with us. But let's start with Bannon as to whom they have the strongest case. I mean, Clark, in his conversations, if Trump were deciding about executive privilege, might have a strong claim. Of course, we'll get to this in a moment. Biden has already decided to waive it. But Bannon wasn't even a member of the executive branch for these, right? No doubt the weakest case. Still and all, I think the issue is whether even going that route they'll be able to expedite it or not. And as you say, 
will DOJ go ahead? Do you, you have any feel for this, Phil? There is a general policy that they don't bring contempt prosecutions against members of the executive branch, including former members, for failure to comply with congressional subpoenas. That's a kind of separation of powers issues they don't wade into. And yet they generally assert executive privilege, but they decided not to here because the stakes are so high. Any sense which way the wind is blowing and how deeply engaged they are in this question over in Pennsylvania Avenue? Well, Harry, we don't know whether any sort of decision's been made in part because it hasn't been forced just yet, but certainly the momentum on Capitol Hill and among those in the administration is to to bring these charges, to try to make the statement and send the message as Laura was getting at in the case of Bannon, because it's the weakest case and because it would set a precedent for these future inquiries and and frankly for the continuation of, of the work of the January 6th commission, because if Bannon can get away with not testifying and not producing the documents and not responding and engaging with this subpoena, then anybody else can too. And so there's a slippery slope here that I suspect the Justice Department is going to want to clean up to sort of put its foot down and say, you can't do this. Joe, let me turn to you because you wrote a piece that suggested that, I'll quote, the reality is that these subpoenas will likely end up in court and could languish for years. Maybe you could elaborate on that and also If that happens again on this issue, what do you see as the cost to public confidence in government, accountability and the like? Yeah, again, this one may be different uh, because it's a criminal contempt, but we've lived through two or three years of Trump and his allies using the legal system and frustrating the legal system so that no one really knows what the truth is. There's been great reporting on this by Phil and many others. So we have a sense of what went on, but they've been able to keep things from the public in a way that I don't think the law was constructed to protect. And in the piece, I'm speaking more for the progressive community. You know, Twitter isn't the real world, but like my Twitter feed is a pretty good sense of where progressives are and how they feel. And there's deep disappointment with Merrick Garland and the fact that nothing is happening. We all know things are happening. And I think my main criticism of DOJ and even the January 6th committee is they haven't taken the time to keep the public informed so that the public has faith that the justice system will work. I think, again, for progressives, The Mueller investigation was incredibly frustrating. You know, no talking about it. And then Mueller issuing a report that got twisted by the attorney general did not have the impact I believe it should have. I think there's an obligation to be more transparent on what they're doing, how they're doing it. And, you know, who are the people of interest? Because until I think a lot of the public sees that, They don't believe the justice system will work. But Joe, don't you think that part of the problem with that type of progressive frustration is that there's this misapprehension of the Justice Department's role? Part of what so many people found so troubling about the Justice Department under Trump was that they were talking about active investigations. Trump was calling for people to be prosecuted and then his attorney general would jump to. I think Merrick Garland's camp would say, 
he's trying his able best to get back to some sort of norms. And even if that seems sort of quaint and Pollyanna-ish these days, I think that at least for DOJ is part of what's going on there. For Congress, I hear you. And I think that that's a little bit different. And, and they certainly do have a different posture to be transparent with the public. And they have put out some information already. We know a lot about what was going down between Jeffrey Clark and Jeffrey Rosen and Trump. We know all about these Oval Office meetings because of all the great reporting and because Congress has already shared some of that information with us. But Kate Shaw at Cardozo Law School writes a great piece about how the Biden administration and and Biden DOJ is trying to do something of a constitutional course correction. That does seem like Merrick Garland's project here is to sort of get back to the old days when we didn't show all of our cards. We didn't show our entire hand, especially in the middle of an active investigation. Yeah, I I completely take that point. And in my time in government, I often made the point that DOJ was doing an investigation and we wouldn't comment uh, on it. I, I just think Given what happened, there had to be a course correction, but I think it also had to include the idea that in correcting course, establishing credibility in our justice system was a very important element. And I think by not saying much, I think Garland has answered one or two questions. I think Chris Ray has done a couple of hearings, but not really revealed anything. I think they're further deteriorating trust in the justice department. It may not be fair. And it may not be right, but I think it's something that they should wrestle with precisely because there needs to be a course correction and there needs to be a rebuilding of trust with DOJ and the public. Look, I think we have a hard dynamic here because DOJ holds the stronger cards, but they are opaque and they act in very discreet ways. And Garland has shown no appetite for bending these norms. They investigate, and when it's time to make an announcement, they do, but they don't give progress reports. And Congress is the exact opposite, but it holds, I think, the weaker hand, or in any event, it's played its cards, and now it is to the Justice Department. I don't think people have taken enough stock of the difficult position Garland is going to be in. There is an OLC memo out there. Remember OLC memos when it came time to considering criminal charges against Trump? And it says this is generally not what happens. He can overrule it, and perhaps he will. But this is right at the seam of his desire to course correct on the one hand, but also to play it by the book on the other. Well, I want to move to Clark. I think he's an interesting and very different case. But I, I want to ask, no matter how it plays out, even if they bring contempt charges against Bannon, that's still a court case. That's still time. On the other hand, it's an actual cost. That's been the most frustrating thing is they could jerk around the justice system and have a free pass at it. Whereas Bannon will be taking a chance that at the end of the day, even if he's frustrated, Congress may land him in a jumpsuit. So let's move on to Clark. Does he have greater pressure to testify? How does it play out for him? Because he tried to do this coup and everyone stood up against him. And many of those people 
starting with the acting AG, Jeff Rosen, have given voluntary statements before the committee. That kind of puts him in a tighter vise, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, what's his argument going to be about why he gets to stay quiet? And if you are Jeffrey Clark, don't you sort of want your side of the story out there? We haven't really heard his best defense yet. There's been a ton of reporting out there that looks terrible for him. And just for the record of history, he is an attorney. I assume that he wants to work after this. He, I would think that he doesn't what doesn't want the historical record to be that you were the guy who tried to take down the AG because you wanted his job and you were so desperate to please the president. The bar complaint already has been filed. Right. He's got bigger worries. Right. You know, he's still in his career and he, he could get disbarred easily. He's lost his other job, by the way, a couple of days ago. He's no longer listed on whatever conservative civil liberties foundation he was with. That's a really important point about him. And I would also add that his testimony could be more valuable to the committee than what Bannon has to say because he was in the government, because it's essential for this committee to try to piece together the architecture of the coup from within, you know, understanding who are all of the people who were a part of it, what were they doing, what kind of communication did they have in those weeks and days leading up to January 6th with the president and with the president's outside allies, you know, really piecing that together from an accountability standpoint to understand how deep did this coup attempt go and who inside of the government was responsible for it. I agree there. And I think the ultimate question for the public and for full faith in our system of government is how high does this go? What was the president's role? I don't anticipate President Trump in a jumpsuit, but I think there's a strong public interest in knowing what the president did, when he did it, and what can we do going forward to make sure that no president ever can do that again. And I think Clark may hold a key, if not the key. And I think his potential cooperation more with DOJ than with the congressional committee could help unlock that answer because I think ultimately that's the most important question. He's in hot water in three different ponds. The IG at the DOJ is investigating him. There is a bar complaint and a potential criminal liability, but we know what's going to await him. I'll quote Senator Whitehouse who said, look, just as you guys are all saying, how was this organized? Was this really just one little guy in the Department of Justice with a wild idea? I doubt it. And the Senate interim report gave, I think, seven or eight conversations between him and Trump that we don't know the content of before the big January 3rd showdown, at the beginning of which he's a nobody who is served up to Trump by a congressman from Pennsylvania and at the end of which he's bragging that he could be the acting attorney general if the current one doesn't play ball with him. And it seems he has more to lose by staying quiet, right? It, it seems like we all agree that he has perhaps a self-interest in perhaps just saying, look, here's everything I know and putting all his cards out there just to protect himself and perhaps throwing Trump under the bus along the way. I think that's right. He reminds me a little of Gordon Sondland in the impeachment. Right <laughs> yes. now, he is persona non grata for everybody. Yes. Everyone's running from him. And he's got a life to leave, and he has to think about rehabilitating himself. Harry, the one thing that I think is worth mentioning here, and it, it goes to a broader issue, which is Trump is still a political force. He's still the leading figure in the Republican Party. So staying in his good graces politically 
is still important. We saw Chuck Grassley standing with Trump in Iowa. Chuck Grassley doesn't need Donald Trump or never has before, but it has now made the calculation that he does. So I think it's just a little bit more complex than just, you know, what's his legal jeopardy? It's what's his standing in the party and what does Trump think of him? And I think for the majority of Republicans right now, they are preoccupied with that question. Like, what does Trump think of me? Is he going to come after me? Will he endorse me? And that is what is paralyzing the party. It's a great point. And vis-a-vis Trump, Clark has one other feature that I think would put him not in his good graces. He's a loser. So I think of the James Bond movie before the floor comes out and you're fed to the piranhas. On top of everything else, Clark didn't make it happen. One quick exit question. Joe says we won't see Trump in a jumpsuit. Probably fair. Will, however, the investigation ever circle back to a subpoena for the former president? From a public interest standpoint, it should, because I think it'd be important to hear his testimony about not only what he did and didn't do during the attack on January 6th, but his knowledge of of what was being planned in the days leading up to it and having him answer so many of the important questions about the coup attempt. But, you know, I don't know whether Congress will actually try to subpoena him. It seems like the timing on that is so fraught. They don't want to do it too soon and look like they've just chomping at the bit to get after Trump. And it seems like it would behoove them to wait until there's some new nugget that makes it seem as if his testimony is absolutely essential. It is already absolutely essential, but it just seems like from a public perception standpoint, they might want to wait. For instance, Clark. Yeah. That might be the play with Clark, right? And Harry, I think what's missing here is context. You know, I don't normally bring this subject up, but I worked for a president and spoke for him as a sitting president who not only answered a subpoena, he talked in front of a grand jury. He gave a blood test because ultimately he respected the legal system and something that was very painful for lots of people. And if we are now going to take the position that trying to overturn an election and stage a coup is not something President Trump has to be questioned about, not, not charged with anything, but questioned about, that has long-lasting ramifications. That is just a killer point. On top of everything else, not to have the information here, I think, is an absolute blow to the Democratic body. And I think it's worth noting that Phil and his colleagues have really done yeoman's work yes. in telling us a lot of the story. Yes. I mean, we know a lot more than Trump would like us to know. And I would encourage anyone who's really interested in what was happening to pick up both of the books because you get a real sense. But that's not enough. Here, here. But Phil, you'd be the first to say there's more to fill in if people would step forward as would have happened in the past. Thank you, guys. And it's just worth reminding listeners that as reporters, we're only able to learn what our sources will tell us. And we don't have the power to subpoena people (laughs) or to obtain internal emails and documents uh, that are not given to us. And so there is a lot that we've learned about January 6th, but there's still a lot more to learn that we're not learning right now because of the unwillingness of people like Clark and like Bannon and like Trump, frankly, to cooperate with these investigations. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. 
Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thanks, Harry. Today's spirited debate centers around a recipe for a timeless cocktail from the 1800s, the old-fashioned, where the question still stands whether to use rye whiskey or bourbon. The original recipe calls for bourbon, so we've already scored one point for bourbon there. As for the specific brand, the rule of thumb is if you wouldn't sip it by itself, it has no home in the glass of your old-fashioned. In our other hand, we've got rye whiskey, which introduces a peppery bite that's a little bit spicier and less sweet than bourbon. Again, if we take a note from history, we learn that the original recipe called for sugar. It was actually first defined in print as spirit, bitters, sugar, and water. So you could definitely supplement the less sweet rye option and use simple syrup instead of a muddled sugar cube for a balanced twist. The jury's still out when it comes to a verdict in the rye versus bourbon debate, but we do know this. Whichever one you go with, you'll want something at least 90 proof or higher so your drink stands up to dilution from the melting ice. From all of us here at Total Wine & More, Cheers to bourbon and rye. And remember, always think interesting, drink interesting. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. Let's shift to the other main battleground in the country now, which is the vaccine. The standoffs are becoming more intense with a few Republican governors re-re-redoubling down on opposing mandates. So the governor of Texas issued an executive order purporting to prohibit any entity in Texas from enforcing vaccine mandates. It's, of course, on a collision course with a federal mandate that's working its way now from OSHA and will shortly issue that would apply maybe to two-thirds of the national workforce, as many as 100 million workers. So let's start here. Is Governor Abbott serious? Does he really think he can make his will prevail here, or is he basically know he's going to have to yield on the one hand to the federal government, on the other to businesses and school districts, but he just is angling for points with the Trump base and the anti-vaccine sentiments? I think he knows it's a loser. I think he's facing a tough primary, and his main opponent, his challenger, Huffines, has been essentially just roasting him about this for weeks and months, and it's pushing him further and further to the right. And not not only just Don Huffins, but also Alan West, who has been avowed against vaccine mandates. And it's clear that the pressure campaign has worked, at least for now, in Abbott's case. I think he knows, he has lawyers, I assume, who have told him he was going to lose this. It doesn't matter if he loses it. It doesn't even matter if he doesn't bring one case. All these companies have basically told him, I don't care about your executive order. We're going to follow Biden's. I think Laura is exactly right. And I think this is all purely political posturing. The outcome for Abbott is not do all of these companies mandate masks or not. It, it's Is Abbott standing in the right place for his Republican base and standing up against the Biden administration and using Texas as a national example to stick it to the health officials? I think the basic difference between Trump administration and the Biden administration is Trump dealt with COVID as a political issue from the very first day. 
And I think Biden, from the very first day, dealt with it as a public health issue. And therein is the divide. And I think there's lots of blame to go around for disinformation and vaccine hesitancy. But to get to the political question that Phil and Laura were just talking about, I think it doesn't matter to Abbott whether he wins in court or not. He is looking to make sure that the Trump voters stay with him. He feels like he's got to do that. I think a way more interesting um, question is on his abortion law. I think Republicans for a long time have used this to fundraise and generate enthusiasm and action with their base. And now it's almost like the dog has caught the car. I don't think sincerely the political people in the Republican Party wanted to win that case or do want to win this case. They just want the issue because the downside of winning that case is energizing a much bigger block uh, of voters uh, in this country. But all of this You take Abbott, you take DeSantis, you take the guy in Mississippi whose name I can't remember. It's all this sort of perversion of politics. You know, politics have never been pure, but in my memory, I've never seen such disregard for human life in order to score political points. There are so many people dying who didn't need to die. And the politicians and commentators, the Fox News types who are pushing this stuff, it's just beyond me that life means so little to them. And since you mentioned it, so many people who are not getting constitutionally guaranteed medical services. We do have a newsflash in the Texas abortion case, which is the Fifth Circuit, basically without any reasoning at all, refused to dissolve the stay from the district court. But now it will be served up cleanly to the Supreme Court again, and because it's the federal government that's suing, the whole convoluted crazy quilt enforcement scheme isn't there anymore. It strikes me, Harry, you said it's served up cleanly. I think it's more than that. I think it's served up in such a different way than it was, because you remember back when this issue first came up to the court was before the law actually had even gone into effect, if memory serves me. And so it was the abortion providers, not DOJ, going to the Supreme Court saying, please do something about this before it goes into effect. Supreme Court declines to even take it up, and by declining to even take it up, lets the law go into effect. It's now been over a month, maybe two months by the time the court actually hears it. There is now a documented record of harm from this law having been into effect that is, I think, in a very different place than it was when it came to the court or a little before September 1st. I, I think that's a meaningful difference. And they now have a district court opinion that runs 113 pages. It's a careful opinion. It's in a different spot than it was. And yet that may not matter for this court. That may not matter to these justices. But I think it's objectively in a different place than it was. And I just want to point out as a nerd, as a resident nerd in this conversation, that they have an easy way to do this with saving face, which is they can just take this case now and consolidate it with the Mississippi case. Yes, It's a more severe statute, so it would be fitting to do it together. And they might think that if they reverse ground, no one would understand and it would make them look even more political. But this is something they very plausibly could do. All right, let's jump back now to the vaccines and just a quick question, which is you made this point, Joe, that everyone is just 
looking, you know, where is the big man and where's the ring to kiss on Trump? I shouldn't be dumbfounded, but it's so a anti-health and leading to people's deaths, as you say, and b anti-science, anti-facts. Is it really going to become a central platform plank for the Republican Party in 2022 and 2024 that Anyone who wants to grab the golden ring has to make it an article of faith that we cannot mandate vaccines? I I think that's a geographical question. I think California told us that in a very liberal state, mandates work and people support it. Mississippi is a, a different place. I think Trump will make this an issue. I think he'll make election fraud a bigger issue. I think that's the litmus test now for whether he will support you or not. You know, I think of all of us, the person closest to Trump's circle and all that is probably Phil. So I'm interested in how you'd answer that question. And Phil, I'll just make it harder, which Joe's right about the local differences, but I'm talking about making it to national prominence and people who are thinking about being president wherever they're from, you know, presidential nominee in the party. Is this a forced position for them? I think it is. And frankly, I think at this point in the Republican Party, any position that Donald Trump takes is a forced position for anyone who wants to have any national leadership role as a Republican. He's not just the leader of the party, but he's the dominant force in it. And he dictates the party's agenda. And Joe's right that election fraud is the top issue right now and the key litmus test for Trump. But vaccines, mask guidelines, all COVID-related restrictions are right up there at the moment as a number two issue. And there's really no wiggle room for Republicans. And it's proving difficult, for example, in Virginia, in the, the gubernatorial race right now, where the Republican nominee is having to very carefully navigate around all of these Trump questions, because obviously Trump is deeply unpopular in some of the swing districts that he would have to carry as a Republican to win that governorship. And yet he can't distance himself from Trump or he risks alienating all of those Trump voters. And we'll see that play out around the country in the midterm elections next year, I think. But don't you guys think that on the vaccine mandates, just nationally, People are in a different place now than they were even six months ago on this stuff. People are tired of people who are unvaccinated. Vaccinated people want to be around other vaccinated people. And you see the president's evolution on this. He didn't go the mandate route to begin with, despite probably being advised that it would be more effective. His own data shows after he announces his mandate, you go from 95 million people being unvaccinated to 65. The vaccine mandates work. Somehow the compelling people to do things works really well in this country. And people's tolerance overall just seems much, much lower. The sort of visceral frustration with people these days seems so much more palpable than it did even a few months ago. And so it seems politically not wise to be on the other side of that. I agree, but I don't think politically the mandates has changed the dynamic. The thing about Trump is it's never really about policy. It's about dividing people culturally. And I think he's very effective at getting people riled up on almost any. It's, you know, take the issue vaccines. They're taking advantage of you. Election fraud. They've taken advantage of you. And that's what he's done. And to pick up on Phil's point, 
even as most of the public moves toward vaccination, which most of the public has, the politicians still are hamstrung by not wanting to cross Trump. And this is a cultural issue that he thinks works for him. You know, this idea of freedom of choice and, and all of that. So I think mandates are important. I think the business community couldn't be happier that now this issue has been taken out of their hands and they say, we just have to do what the executive order says. Yeah. But there's a very important large block of people I think will never do it because the people they trust are telling them not to do it. And the public health director from Idaho was on TV the other day, and he said, we've lost. COVID will be here forever. We've lost this battle. I don't know that that's the case, but this is why elections are important. Elections tend to send a message to people running of what works and what doesn't work. So vaccines being an issue and hesitancy people do well in the next election, less people be vaccinated. On the flip side, if the Abbots of the world and their people allied with them do poorly, then I think you will see a change. It's why elections matter. But this still has to play out. And it's just still putting lots of lives at risk for a political game. So depressing, and not only because of the lies, but just what it portends for the level of political debate over the next couple years. But let me just push quickly back on you, Joe, and then we move off. Now think of the possible people on the horizon, the DeSantis's and whoever. There are four or five Republicans on the stage in 2024. You think none of them, there's no room for any of them to be pro-vaccine or pro-mandate Anyone who takes that view is automatically out of contention for the nomination. Listen, I think people like DeSantis and Abbott have bet their political future on this. They have moved all the chips into the middle of the table. What will be interesting in looking at the election is, will there be a Republican who will stand up and say they're wrong? And what will happen to that Republican? I think... If their convention was today and they were nominated at the convention, there is no Republican to say that. But by the time we get to the end of 2003, the beginning of 2004, things may be very different. And the political bet that Governor Abbott and DeSantis and everybody else who's running in the party may prove to be a bad bet. As Laura says, I mean, people in general are moving. The African-American community in particular, which was kind of arm's length has now more and more come around to vaccines. And, and just in general, it's down to a real hardcore. All right, it is now time for our sidebar feature, which is going to explain ranked choice voting, which had its debut in the New York City mayoral election recently. And to explain it to us, we are really fortunate to welcome Will Butler, an Academy Award-nominated singer-songwriter and composer, best known as the acrobatic, multi-instrumental core member of the Grammy Award-winning anthemic indie rock collective Arcade Fire. And if that weren't enough, in 2013, Will teamed up with Owen Pallett to create the soundtrack for the fantastic futuristic romantic comedy Her for which he received his Oscar nomination. So I give you Will Butler and Ranked Choice Voting. What is Ranked Choice Voting? 
New York recently completed its first ranked choice voting municipal election, making it the largest jurisdiction in the country to do so. Under the ranked choice voting system, instead of picking one candidate, voters rank their top choices. For example, in the recent Democratic primary for New York mayor, voters could choose up to five of the 13 candidates to rank as top choices. After the votes are cast, the counting begins. If any candidate is ranked number one by more than 50% of the voters, that person wins the election. If no one receives 50%, the candidate with the fewest first place votes is dropped and that candidate's voters are reallocated based on their second choice candidate. That process is repeated until a candidate receives at least 50% of the votes. In an election with many candidates, that process may go several rounds. The counting in New York required at least eight rounds. Consequently, while election day was June 22nd, an unofficial winner was not declared until July 6th, nearly two weeks later. That may have also had something to do with New York's archaic and classically corrupt Board of Elections, but that is a separate sidebar. Despite these delays, advocates of ranked choice voting argue that the system provides several advantages over traditional voting. The clearest advantage is that it ensures that a winner has support of at least a majority of voters. Supporters claim that ranked choice voting is cheaper than alternative methods, such as runoff elections, to achieve this goal. Ranked choice advocates also argue that the requirement of winning by majority vote discourages negative campaigning and encourages moderate candidates who can do more than just assemble a plurality of strongly motivated supporters. Critics of ranked choice voting point to the fact that the system can confuse voters, and there is some evidence that this confusion increases the chance of disenfranchising voters of color in particular. Moreover, high-profile counting delays in determining the winner of ranked choice elections, notably in New York, have provided ammunition for opponents of the system. Despite these issues, ranked choice voting seems poised to increase in popularity. Since 2016, ranked choice voting has been used in Maine, has been used in five Democratic presidential caucuses and primaries in 2016, and at least 18 municipalities around the country. For Talking Feds, I'm Will Butler. Thanks very much to Will Butler. In addition to work with his celebrated band, Butler produced some notable side projects as well as solo albums, including 2015's Policy and 2020's Generations. Equitable access to high-quality health care is a right for everyone. It's not a privilege for some. Our Health California is a grassroots advocacy community fighting for statewide and federal health policies that advance affordable care for everyone. With more than 1 million healthcare supporters, Our Health California educates patients, health enthusiasts, and voters about health and mental health care, then connects supporters with lawmakers to advocate for change. Since 2019, Our Health California advocates have sent more than 46,000 messages to their lawmakers and taken nearly 168,000 advocacy actions. Visit ourhealthcalifornia.org to join and make your voice heard. It's free. Again, that's ourhealthcalifornia.org. Let's talk about the spending bills. Let's talk through the lens of Biden's political position. So he hasn't made the final sale. The White House is agreeing now to hack off, you know, a trillion dollars Manchin's strategy of opposing without proposing seems to be working. Start here. Biden's approval rating is dropping and the White House 
definitely sees it as a political imperative to pass the bills. So are there new cards that he has left to play, including turning right and trying to embrace any Republicans? What does he have left by way of strategy? I I would argue that any kind of strategy that banks on getting bipartisan support from Republicans, especially Republicans in the Senate, is not a particularly wise strategy. And and the White House knows they're going to have to cobble this together with Democratic votes. And at this point, all he can do is, is just ratchet up the political pressure on fellow Democrats and reinforce for them how existential this is. If they finish this season without either of these infrastructure bills, that's a pretty huge failure on the part of the Democratic president, and and there'll be reverberations for the Democrats in Congress. And they know that, and Pelosi and Schumer know that too. I suspect they'll get somewhere in the next few weeks. Continue to placate however you can, Mansion and cinema. Is that the basic play? That's their only play, right? And I would separate uh, Mansion from Cinema because s- Democrats have some leverage on Cinema. If she does not come around, she will be primaried and she will lose in the primary. I am co- very confident of that. The problem with Mansion is they have no leverage with him. There is nothing that any Democrat can offer Joe Manchin that moves him off the place he is now. We can argue whether he's taking this position as a matter of principle or as a matter of increasing his public exposure. It almost doesn't matter because this is up to him. I think what's getting lost in all of this, though, and it's unfortunate, is this is an incredibly transformational bill. I would argue that since the 1980s, And I, you know, I served a president and we didn't do enough. The safety net in this country has been shredded and has not been updated to reflect the reality of the world we live in now. And the ironic thing is Biden got elected because people thought he will just calm things down and we'll just have a breath. And what he put forward was, I think, the most important piece of legislation since the Civil Rights Act. I think it's more important than the Health Care Act because it goes to the rest of the issues that face working families. And all I hear in the debate from Capitol Hill is the price tag and 3.5 versus 2.5 versus 2.0. And this is a chicken and egg thing. Did Biden not sell it well enough? Is the media covering it just as a horse race? It's probably a little bit of all of those things. I worked for a guy who was not only a policy wonk, but he was a great salesman. When he had an idea, he'd go and hit the road and sell it. I think Obama and Biden are are great policy people, but not the best salespeople to the public in the context of using the public to pressure Congress. So for something so important, he's left at the end of the day having to make a deal that takes a transformational bill and potentially makes it a Band-Aid bill. But it's also, as you point out, Joe, such an odd situation to have such a massively transformative project out there, like probably every progressive's fever dream in so many ways and have the debate center around moderates versus progressives in Congress instead of it's being a massive philosophical debate between Democrats and Republicans. And so the coverage gets sort of caught up into these process fights and and numbers fights between Democrats while the public at large 
the vast majority of which has no idea what's actually in the bill, which is just an incredible shame given how transformational it is. We should at least be able to have the debate about the contents of the bill, but nobody knows what's in the bill because everybody's caught up on mansion and cinema and Jayapal. And it's just, it's sort of a, a train wreck. And I'm absolutely not taking the position that somehow the media is not doing their job. This is what the politicians are debating. I, I think they're accurately covering how the politicians have been arguing with each other. There's very few of them who are out there selling the substance of this bill. They have gotten themselves caught in this trap, the process trap, and it doesn't do justice to the bill. Manchin said something this week that revealed, I think, his entire strategy. He said, you can have child care, you can have parental leave, you can have universal pre-K. But you can only pick one. Mm. I thought elected officials were put there to decide what the best policy was, not offer multiple choice mm-hmm. tests. And, and unfortunately, or, or fortunately, whatever your point of view is, he revealed exactly how he looks at this issue, which is purely political and purely designed to say, I did this. I cut however many trillion dollars, but without any sense at all about how to weigh what's in the bill. He just said, I don't care about these three things. You can only have one of them, though. And that that's just a little crazy. To Joe's salesman point, I don't have a poll right in front of me, but I would have to imagine the individual pillars of this bill are all wildly popular, yes. uh, not only with the general public, but with voters in West Virginia. Of course, they want child care. Of course, they want pre-K. Of course, they want all of these other programs. And it just goes straight to a, a kind of failure on the part of the president to communicate that clearly and decisively and, and capture the public's imagination around this transformational act. He's just not been able to sort of use his bully pulpit to generate that kind of popular momentum around what should be a very popular piece of legislation. It should be politically painful for a mansion or a cinema to vote against it, given how popular these measures should be in their in their states. And yet people are not focused on it and engaged on it because the president's not forcing it. I think it does go to how American politics work. It's not so much that a lot of people agree with you. It's how strongly they believe with you. It's intensity. The case study for that is gun control. 80, 85 percent of the country says we should do this, but they don't stay up at night. That's not the issue they vote on. 15, 20 percent say we shouldn't do this. That's the voting issue. And I think, you know, Manchin looks at this and says, yeah, these are popular. But when it gets time for me to run for reelection, people are not going to vote on this issue. They care more about the rhetoric of big government telling us what to do and higher taxes. And that's a political judgment. And it's why we are where we are. Those political judgments are made and they are accurate based on how people go out and vote. It also seems to me that one of the weird things in this debate, and I think it informs how it was covered, is that For a while, it seemed like no one really knew where the president stood on things. And so everyone else was just sort of grafting and projecting their own wishes onto the bill to say, well, my position is what the president's plan is. Or no, my position is actually what the president really wants. And so I think the public was left with 
Build Back Better is the president's plan, but somehow some Democrats don't want all of it. And so I felt like the public was left a little bit confused about where Biden actually stood on his own plan, because for so long he kind of have just let it play out amongst lawmakers without weighing in himself. Well, I think it reveals a lot about President Biden, which is he thinks he believes that deals are made in a closed room with the doors closed with people acting in good faith. People don't act in good faith anymore in this town between Democrats and Republicans. And secondly, the leverage he has is with the American public, Mm -hmm. is getting them ginned up uh, on these things. And I think the lesson uh, for him here is that you have to do both. You have to be ready to go in and use your powers of persuasion, which I am told he's the best there is at, you know, know, sitting in a room of legislators. But you also have to get the public behind you. And I think the lesson of this one is that the public agrees with it, but they don't know enough about it and they don't know how big a bill this is. These are all great points. I mean, there's a real flavor of you saying, oh, well, you know, would you take Three trillion, two point five, just a kind of old style poll negotiation when he ought to be saying, among other things, do you understand what we're going to be doing with child poverty in this country, et cetera? I, I think at the end of the day, it is hard to see Manchin completely folding his arms. But as Phil says, there's really not much leverage there. Let's leave it there for now. And we have a minute left for our five words or fewer feature where we take a question from a listener and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. And okay, guys, uh, riddle me this. Dr. Sanjay Gupta recently appeared on the Joe Rogan podcast. I think I've heard of that one where he attempted to convince Rogan to get his COVID vaccination. How can we convince big celebrities to get vaccinated? Let me think in five words. Require vaccinations to win awards. (laughs) Emmys, Oscars, Grammys. Oh. Yeah, my, I, my five words are a slight variation on that and it doesn't even take five words. It's a good photo op. <laughs> oh, yeah. There you go. So, but same same idea, Phil. Uh, money, mandates, and Sanjay. There you go. I'm going with free sushi lunch with vaccination. <laughs> all right. That is all the time we have. Thank you very much to Laura, Joe, and Phil. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters, and sometimes even for non-supporters, including the really exciting feature we have coming this week, the return of the great Barney Frank who is going to be one-on-one with me talking about the politics of COVID. It will be, I think, exciting to have his voice back on the national scene. And we also post there our latest episodes in our Talking Book series. This week, we posted a long interview with Bob Woodward and Robert Costa over their blockbuster bestseller, Peril. 
Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com. Whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez. Our associate producer is Olivia Henriksen, and our assistant producer is Matt McArdle. Adam Macias is our sound engineer. David Lieberman and Rosie Don Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Ray Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. And our consulting producers are Dustin Nals and Andrea Carla Michaels. Thanks very much to Will Butler of the Great Arcade Fire for explaining ranked choice voting. Special thanks to Jess Lieberman. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.